If you haven't already, please turn to Mark chapter 14. The text for this morning's sermon is verses 1 through 11. Now, I'll be focusing mainly on the first nine verses, but I think it's important to read the, 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 the last two that I've added. So verses 10 and 11 will be addressed more next week, but I think it's important to read them this week in light of the text. Mark 14, 1 through 11. It's on page 850 in the Pew Bible. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word for God's people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. Let's pray. God, we ask that your spirit would cause us to be able to be amazed again by the glories of your Son, Jesus Christ. We just sang in our last worship song that we wanted to see Christ, that we wanted you to show us Christ. And so, Father, we pray that prayer now, show us Christ. For Christ is the answer to our every need, our greatest need. We need Jesus this morning. Believer and non-believer, we need to see him rightly, bigger, more glorious as he truly is. I pray, Father, for the weary-hearted Christians, those in this place who are pressing on. They're they're living by grace, which is a wonderful and good thing, trusting in you. I pray, Father, that you would refresh them this morning, that your word would fill their souls, and the truth found in this text would, would be like fuel for their engine so that they would press on in the Christian life and glorify you. Father, again, we pray that you would do what only you can do, You would give eyes to the blind. You give ears to the deaf. You would cause dead hearts to beat. That is, that they would behold the glory of Christ and trust in him. We thank you for this morning, this opportunity to be in your word, to encourage one another with the gospel, to look to Christ. We pray that you would do all these things for your glory and because of our great need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How valuable is Jesus? Is he more valuable than all of the gold, silver, bronze, and diamonds in the world? Is he more priceless than the greatest works of art that the world has ever known? Well, if you're a Christian, then you know the answer, and it's a very easy one. Yes! He's more valuable than all of these things because Jesus is 
of supreme value. That is, no one is more precious than Christ. His value surpasses everyone and everything. Doesn't matter what it is. Jesus is more valuable. I'll ask another question that's similar. How worthy is Christ? Is he worthy of all of your earthly treasures? Is Jesus worthy of you facing hardship, suffering, and persecution? The very difficulties you're facing in life right now in this season. Is he worth it? If by grace you have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ, well then you know that Jesus is of incomparable worth. No one and nothing compares to him. Of course. So all these answers, yes, yes, yes. He's worth it. He's more valuable. He is supreme. He is incomparable. Because of his supreme value and his incomparable worth, when someone treasures Jesus, it is not just the right thing to do, though it certainly is that. It is a beautiful thing to do, and that's what we find in this text. Jesus says, those who treasure me do something beautiful. And so this morning, my aim in preaching this text is, is twofold. First, I want to, to put before you a little bit about the, the supreme worth and value of Jesus Christ. If the, the, the reality of, of the glory and the greatness and the surpassing worth could be fit into a scratch and sniff sticker, this morning I'll only be scratching the very corner But just by scratching the corner, I believe that the aroma for God's people will permeate their souls. And it will be a feast for us, at least our nostrils. I guess if I'm sticking with that illustration. There's no way we can can bask in the reality of of Jesus' worth enough. So this morning, I just want to scratch the surface of his worth. And then also, I want us to look at this woman's beautiful act and see how it serves as a guide for us as Christians to to better treasure Jesus Christ because there's great application to be made. So so we're going to look at the worthiness of Christ and then we're going to look at this this woman's act and, and how it might guide and help us better to treasure Christ because this is what we were made to do, church. We were made to treasure Christ. This is why it's so beautiful. We are living out not just our created purpose, but the very reason why God has saved us in Christ so that we would not waste our lives living for the things of this world, but we would waste them in the best sense of the word waste for Jesus because he is worthy of these things. Well, Mark begins in this text by informing us that it was only two days before the Passover. The Passover is and was a week-long celebration that begins with the Passover meal and then continues with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, before the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Passover was the defining moment. It was a remembrance of the defining moment in redemptive history. It was something like Christmas and Good Friday and Easter all wrapped up into one glorious holiday a celebration instituted by God so that his chosen people would always remember that he alone is their God, that it was God who had redeemed them and rescued them from slavery and bondage in Egypt. And so, so God was building into his people's calendar their, their very celebration and their festivals the great truth that he alone is God, that he alone saves his people and his people are to worship him alone. Well, the Passover meal was, was tied directly to the events surrounding that tenth and final plague of the firstborn. 
That was when God commanded Israel to slaughter a, a, a lamb without blemish and then put the blood on the doorpost and then the lentil above the door. And not only that, but then to gather as households and, and, and eat the, the lamb together. And God said that, that he would pass over all those houses that had followed his commands, his instructions to put the blood over the door and, and on the lintel, but that he would also pour out his judgment on any household that did not have the blood on the door. It was this plague that, after this plague, that Pharaoh finally let God's people go. So in the Passover, you see, God was again building into his, his people's calendar this truth. A lamb had to die and they had to be covered by the Lamb's blood in order to be saved and freed. And it's a truth that clearly points right to Jesus. Right to Jesus. This is a gospel reality. Jesus is that Lamb. Then Mark also tells us that the chief priests and the scribes were, were plotting a way to secretly arrest and then kill Jesus. And their desire was this. They knew all these people were clearly, obviously, coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. That's where the, the Passover, Passover was to be celebrated. And, and there would be people from Galilee, you know, those rowdy Galileans, those zealots were coming in. And they had no intention of arresting Jesus and killing him during the Passover. That would, that would in their minds, probably start a riot. They had no desire to do that. So their desire was kind of just to ride it out. They had dealt with Jesus up until this point, and And so they could in their minds, just ride this out, and then sometime after the Passover, they would have Jesus arrested and then work hard to destroy him, which they had been planning to do for so long. Earlier on when Mark, we see them plotting and planning to destroy him. And yet, despite the religious leaders' wicked plans to kill Jesus sometime after the Passover, God had other plans. So we make plans, and then in God's providence, he changes things. He works his own plan out in his providence. And so during the Passover, only two days later, the Lord Jesus Christ, the very time that the religious leaders said, let's not do it then, that, that very time Jesus, our Lord and Savior, would be nailed to the cross where he would hang and then die to pay for our sins. This brings us right to right to one of the reasons why Jesus is of supreme value and of incomparable worth. He is the one that John proclaimed that truth over. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the great and final Passover lamb. He's the one that every other Passover lamb that was ever slaughtered was pointing to. He, he's the end of the Passover lambs because he is the true and final Passover lamb. He's the one who died so that we who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God would be saved from eternal death and freed from slavery to sin. Oh, how we hate sin, don't we, church? And not just other people's sin, but our own sin. My boys have been singing this song from a, a, a kid's um, CD, and it talks about sin, how sin is the scariest. It's the worst. And they often quote it to one another when one of their brothers is sinning against them, and, and it comes out then. It seldom happens that they sing that song when they're the ones sinning, and, and so then we try to sing it to them. It kind of works out like this. And I'll take whatever I can get. Some good theology coming out of my young boys' mouths. They're singing it. It's good. But th this is the reality. that They're singing, and we believe sin destroys. And yet, here we're reminded in this, this reflection on, on the plotting and the scheming of the religious leaders that 
The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, came so that, that we would be redeemed and we would be freed, not, not ultimately simply from some physical slavery, but from spiritual slavery to sin, so that that which destroys us would be put away with ultimately, and we would be free to treasure Christ. Because what does sin ultimately do? It's rejecting, ignoring God in the world that he created, and us not functioning and living the way that we're called to live as Christians. Sin keeps us from treasuring Christ. And Jesus died so that we could be freed from wasting our lives sinning. It is his precious blood that has ransomed us, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It's his precious blood that has ransomed us, church. So Jesus is of supreme value and incomparable worth because he is that lamb. Later on in Revelation 5, we read this description about Jesus, and it's so good. I love the, the pictures, the descriptions that we, we find in Revelation of, of who God is and who Christ is, and, and here's one of them. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb by be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Do you see that? Every single created being is crying out. He's awesome. He's worthy to be praised. The lamb that was slain. The picture is huge. And it helps us to have a right view, a focus. Because, And I say this often because it's, it, it's the reality. There's so many shiny things in this world. And, and they're, they're lesser things. They're, they're, they're technology, their money, their houses, their stuff that somehow can get into our minds and make their way down to our hearts and they become these, these things that like grip onto our hearts and keep us from treasuring Christ. And then we read a passage like this and then whatever it is that is keeping us from treasuring Christ pales in comparison to the glory of Jesus. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That's to be our focus. And we've got to come back to this. We've got to remember texts like this. We've got to memorize texts like this so that as shiny things come, and they will, and our flesh and the world and Satan will put them right before us, we'll be prone to wander as we sang. We need that reminder of the glory of Christ, his worthiness, that he is supreme in value, incomparable in worth. Well, Mark breaks from filling us in on the plot to arrest and kill Jesus, which he's going to pick up in verse 10 to tell us about an event that took place earlier that week. Now, we know that this event that we find in verses 3 through 9 took place earlier because John 12, 1 through 11, which records the, the same event, some different details, but the same event, tells us that it took place six days before the Passover. So this is something like a, a divinely placed flashback. Uh, uh, the Holy Spirit is, is causing Mark to, to, put a, to make a sandwich. That's what the theologians call uh, this. this the, there's this, 
description of the plot that the Sanhedrin have, have hatched to arrest and kill Jesus. And then there's this, this account, and then at the end there's another account of somebody devaluing Jesus. And so, and so the Holy Spirit led Mark to put this in between so that in the midst of all this devaluing of Christ, all this, this misunderstanding, this, this minimizing the glory and greatness of Jesus done by the Sanhedrin and Judas who's going to sell Jesus. Rather than sell everything and, and follow Jesus, he's going to sell Jesus for more earthly treasures. Right in the middle of that smack dab, it's cut in half and there's a story of glorious worship so that I think, I believe, God's people would be stirred and there'd be this contrast for us to see. Now we're told that Jesus was in Simon's home in Bethany having this meal when a woman with an alabaster flask filled with an expensive ointment, pure nard, interrupted the meal. Now what is nard? Now for some of us, like in my generation, that's kind of like a, a slang term, that you're like nard dog or something. What, what, what is nard? For us, we don't have any context for this. Who cares nard? It just sounds like a weird word. It sounds like something you don't want poured on you, I, I think, in, in our culture. But it sounds, it's actually a lot better than it sounds. It's this sweet-smelling, fragrant oil. It's a first-century perfume made from a rare plant which made it extremely expensive. And we're told that this flask was, that was full of nard is no joke. It was worth more than 300 denarii, meaning that for a, a average, an average laborer, this would have been a year's salary right here that, that Mary is holding in her hands. And then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about what she does with it, but just think about it. She's holding a year's worth of salary. Now think about you and your salary. A year's worth of your salary being held in her hands. Now, the, the truth is that at this time in history, women could not make much, if any, money. It's very, very few women had access to money. So, so what this probably and most likely is, is this is a, a family heirloom. This is, this is owned by the family. This is, this is something that somehow has been passed along. This is precious, expensive to the family. That's what this is, a treasure that's been passed down, likely to be sold in, in a family emergency. Something drastic happens and they need to get access. This is, this is kind of like a, a, a savings fund. Think about your own precious family heirlooms, if you have any Think about how important they are to you. That's what she's holding in this flask, this, this all-important, expensive jar of nard. Now, Mark does not give us the name of the woman, but here again, John's gospel is very helpful, telling us that this woman is Mary, and not Mary Magdalene, which throughout church history some have assumed or somehow come to the conclusion of. This is Mary, the sister of, of Martha and Lazarus. Now, it's likely that Simon the leper, who would have better be described as Simon the former leper, there's no way he's hosting a meal in Bethany if he still has leprosy. That, that didn't, if you had leprosy, as we've seen previously, you're ostracized from the community. There's a fear that you, your leprosy would spread among everybody else, and so you were put out of the community, the people. And so it's most likely that Simon has been healed by Jesus at some point earlier. He's, he's one of the lepers that, that Jesus has healed. I also found this interesting. Now, it's only speculation, so don't build some doctrine on this, but, but it makes sense. If you read all the accounts and the details, if you look at how Martha's preparing the meal in the house, you look at how Mary is, is able to come into the meal, uh, if, if you look at just kind of the dynamics and some of the history here, 
Theologians, commentators that I, I read, some of them suggest that Simon may have been Mary and Martha and Lazarus' father. That, that's how, that, that's the, the connection here. That, again, it's speculation, but I think it's interesting and it, it makes sense. Now we're told that Mary came in during the dinner. This would have broken the Jewish custom of the day because women were, not, women were not permitted to just barge into a meal if the men were seated down unless they were bringing food. But Mary could not wait. Jesus is in there. She's got the flask full, the alabaster flask full of nard. She, she broke tradition. And Mark tells us that, that that would not be all that she would break, right? She comes and breaks tradition and then breaks open the jar, meaning it cannot be sealed. Something has to be done with that quickly. And she proceeds to pour it over Jesus. John 12, 3 tells us that Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So John tells us that, that Mary dumped it on Jesus' head and this is a lot of ointment. This is a lot of oil. This is a lot of nard. And so it makes sense. And then John gives us the end picture. It's all over his feet and Mary wipes it on his feet. He's, he's completely bathed by this act on Mary. It's full picture. What does this teach us, church? It's a powerful picture. Jesus is to be treasured with our earthly treasures. That alabaster flask full of expensive perfume was likely the most expensive earthly treasure that Mary had ever had or would ever have. And she believed that the very best use of that expensive family heirloom, the, the very most beneficial thing that she could do was to give it, to pour it out on Jesus. Now the cost of a gift can reveal the worth of a person in light of another person. Let me explain that. Uh, oftentimes, what will men do before they propose to a woman? Not in all cases, and you know, this is part of the tradition, all that stuff, so I'm not saying it has to be done. This, if this is not your story, your love story, please don't be offended. I'm just going with tradition here. Uh, the man will work extra jobs. He will put in longer hours so that he can save up enough money to, to buy a ring that will in some way demonstrate his, his great love for his hopefully soon-to-be bride. And especially if he goes through all that, you're you know, kind of rooting for the guy uh, or you're thinking, man, you should be wiser. She's giving you all the signs that this isn't a long-term deal. Come on. Um, Anyways, so, so the man works hard to, to buy this expensive ring because he wants to show how much he loves this, this woman. Now, my experience was this. I, I, I tried not to take out loans in college. Um, I, I worked jobs, and, and so I, I would, you know, work, and then I fell in love with Amy. And, and here's this, you know, pay for school, buy a ring, get ready for real life after college. How is this going to work out? And so I was left at times with difficult decisions. Do I buy eggs and bacon or do I put more money into the savings account I've set up for Amy's ring and live on ramen for another week or two, which I had done. You know, that's kind of my, my MO in college. I was built in on ramen. My mom gave me this book of a thousand recipes for ramen noodles. Make dirts, uh, dirts, tasted like dirt, but uh, desserts and breakfast, all this stuff. And, and thankfully I had parents who sometimes would, would see that, you know, that, that I needed to eat better and so they'd send home eggs and bacon with me. But, but I had to make a decision and because Amy is much more worthy than even the, the small ring that, that um, 
that I purchased for her, uh, I made that decision. It was a, a little, a light way that I could show my love for her. Mary shows her love for Jesus in the costliness of the gift that she pours out on him. Mary believes that Jesus was worth a year's salary being dumped out, gone in an instant. Mary recognized the value and worth of Jesus, that Jesus is of supreme value and incomparable worth. Now, if you remember what Jesus said to Mary and Martha, or to, to Martha in John 11, 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Mary believed that. Mary experienced that reality when Jesus raised Mary's brother Lazarus from the dead. She saw Jesus as the resurrection and the life. And so she had no problem pouring out that expensive offering over her Savior. Because of these things, no one was more worthy of her alabaster flask of pure nard than Jesus. She was not wasting a year's salary by breaking that jar and pouring it on Jesus. She was using a lesser treasure to treasure her greatest treasure, which is Christ. Now the example Mary gives us, and it remains just as true today, is that Jesus is the one most worthy of our earthly treasures. Our money, our time, our stuff, our skills, our car, our career, whatever it is, Jesus is infinitely more valuable than all these things, and God has given them to us, church, so that we would use them to make much of Christ. They're not so that we could live the comfortable Christian American life, they are a means by which we can exalt the greatest one who has saved us from our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we do it, practically speaking? I don't think it's going to be the exact same way that Mary does in this text. I would encourage you not to do it the exact same way. Is there a place, is there a time to you, for you to go to Macy's and uh, you know, avoid all the sprays and the people that are going to try and put on all that stuff and, and just grab a bottle of you know, some expensive thing and dump it out on the, on the ground? I don't think so. If maybe you want to talk to me after that and how that could be. I, I want to try and give you some practical ways that I think we as Christians can use our earthly treasures to treasure Christ. We could come up with a huge list. I just want to put before you a few. If you have a house, do not see it as your castle. See it as a means by which a precious gift or apartment or a place to live, a, a, a gift that God has given to you, not only so that you could have care and comfort, but so that you could open it up and show hospitality. Invite other people into your home to share a meal. Uh, even if you can't cook, I know some of you are like, well, I can't cook. God has allowed humanity to invent this wonderful invention called the crock pot. You just throw it in. And, and if I believed in magic, I'd call it magical. You throw it in, you put some good stuff in there. I mean, even you vegetarians have your recipes. You can make soy taste like, like chicken and all that stuff. You throw it in there. Carrots and, and good stuff. Seasoning, some sriracha. You just put it in there. Hit the button and, and six, eight hours later, this, this wonderful thing is popping out and you can put it in bowls and sit down and talk about Jesus in your home at the table with these people that you're getting to know. Open your home. Christians, in America, we have become so comfortable. We have made the, the, the home our castle when it should be an, an open place for neighbors to come over, people to come in. Again, remember, if you plan it 50 minutes before, don't get there early because we're cleaning our house last minute before you come over. But we want the crock pot to get its use. 
We want people to come into our home. We want the Bible to be open. We want people to talk about Jesus. We want non-Christians to be invited over. That's the picture that, that we should have of our home. It's not our castle. It's a tool to use for God's glory. Take it a step further. You know, I, I love it. There's a Christian movement to care for orphans and those who have no place to live. It's happening in the, in the greater church, not just in America, but throughout the world. Uh, we're, we're seeing it. We just, we just had an event to, to, to encourage that and to, and to participate in, in, in this work as a, as a church and, and to bless and, and, to, and to continue that. And so many of us, I could never foster care. I, I, could, I could never adopt. Throw that out. You know, pray about it, but, but then if, if you just come down, I could never do that. Well, partner, use your home. If, if you can't do that, open it up to, to a missionary to stay with you for a while. If you have an extra room, you'll be blessed. They'll tell you stories. We read stories with our children about missionary stories. How awesome would it be for a missionary to be in your home telling you those stories? Life. And all you got to do is invite them in and stay with you for a while. Use your home for foster care. Adopt. Give generously to the poor. Live below your means so that you can better treasure Christ. And I'm telling you, this is an invitation. In no way am I trying to heap on some works upon the gospel here. I'm inviting you, Christian, to enjoy the, the, the blessing of treasuring Christ, of seeing what God has given to you used rightly and for his glory. The money you have, recognize it as a means by which you can treasure Christ. Put your money, not where your mouth is, but where your heart is. If your heart is for Christ, if your heart is in Christ, in a materialistic society that, that values stuff over people, what better way can we as Christians display the worthiness of Christ than using our money, living below our means, a, a smaller house, less to clean, less to care for, less to pay for, and freeing you up, not just in time because you wanted to clean the house to get ready for all the people you're having over, but to buy more food so you can have more people over. Use your funds, which are really not your funds, but have been entrusted to your care so that you would make much of Christ with them for his sake, to treasure Christ. Now, you may not have a home. You may not have an apartment. You might not have a lot of money or extra money. Well, you've got some time. You've got a life. Paul talks over and over about pouring out his life as an offering. Use your life, your time to read scripture. (laughs) What better way to use your time than to open the book that God has given us that speaks of the glory of Christ. This is how he speaks to us. This is how he speaks directly to his people through his word, by his spirit. Use your time to read scripture. No more excuses. It's so good to read the word. Pray, share the gospel with others. Help with a children's Sunday school class. I got some amens last service from some Sunday school teachers when I said that. Hop in. These little ones have been entrusted to our care. They need to see grown-ups commit to giving up. Giving up. Again, I'll do that. An, An hour of their Sunday, an hour and 20 minutes of their Sunday, so that that they can share Christ with these little ones and and teach them the Bible and then come to another service and worship the Lord with God's people. Begin to pray for God to help you see how you can use what he has given you, your very life, your time, to exalt Christ. And here's the thing, don't give him your leftovers. Spiritually speaking, don't give him what you are about to send over to goodwill or drop off at the Salvation Army. You know, like that raggedy old couch that gets donated to the youth room? (laughs) It's going to be in the garbage, but you're like, yeah, hey, 
can do a great work here. I'll give it to the youth. They can deal with the bugs and all that stuff that's in that thing that's been sitting in my basement. No, you give as Mary gave your greatest treasures because Jesus is your greatest treasure. And it will never be a bad investment. Here's the wonder. You you invest in things, you stock market, all of a sudden it goes up and down. Anything you pour out for the sake of exalting Christ and treasuring him, it will never return poorly. God knows the intentions of your heart. That's where I I think it's wonderful that even those people who get um, bamboozled and, and caught in traps by the prosperity gospel preachers, those who are genuinely giving, despite the false teaching that they're under, out of faith and love for God, God honors that gift, even when it goes to crazy, ridiculous things, and even though it might go to something that, that these false teachers will be judged on, the gift itself, given in faith, is, is blessed and, and received by God. But here's the thing, church. <coughs> it's not a warning, it's, it's just a reality, and we see it in this text. If you treasure Christ, you will be criticized. It's guaranteed. You will be criticized. And not just by non-Christians. There will be professing Christians who hear what you are doing, who see your life, and for various reasons, maybe they they feel guilty. Maybe God is calling them to treasure Christ more with what he has given them, and yet they hold on to that and they see you and, and you're like, you're sacrificing. You're living for the glory of God. You're not rubbing it in. You're not standing before the people. You're not making it known what you're doing and how you're giving and, and all that. But they, they hear the stories and, and they hate it for some reason. Maybe they're not even in Christ, but they're in the church. They're at the church. We see this in verses 4 and 5. Some of those who witnessed Mary break the flask and pour the nard over Jesus viewed it as wasteful. In response to her worship, to her treasuring of Jesus, they began to be indignant. That is, they were furious. They were angry with her act. They were offended. They were upset with what she did. They were questioning her motives. That happens all the time, doesn't it? You give, you work, you, you do something for God with the right intentions and, and so many questions. And now you're just trying to, I, I get the gospel. If I do something, it's not because I think I can earn anything from God because I know I can't. And if you get the gospel, the same thing is going on in your heart. You can't add to it. You, you, can't, you can't earn anything from God. It's all by grace. And so you're led to give out of love and so you, so you can treasure Christ. Well, Mary was worshiping the one that she was made to worship. These men, and I believe Judas, John tells us, was really leading the charge, scolded her, scolded her. But their actions were were not really ultimately a rejection of of Mary. They were a rejection of the worthiness of Christ. That was a waste. How could you pour it out on him? That act wasn't worth it. All that money just down the drain. They did not believe that he was worthy of such an act. In commenting on these verses and this truth, J.C. Rao writes, if a man devotes his time, money, and affections to the pursuit of worldly things, they do not blame him. If he gives himself up to the service of money, pleasure, or politics, they find no fault. But if the same man devotes himself and all that he has to Christ, they can scarcely find words to express their sense of his folly. In short, they regard it as waste. Let charges like these not disturb us. If we hear them made against us because we strive to serve Christ, let us bear them patiently and remember that they are as old as Christianity itself. Let us pity those who make such charges against believers. They show plainly that they have no sense of obligation to Christ. I love reading godly saints, men and women who have gone before because we realize that when we read what they have written about God and the Christian life, man, it's the same today. 
We're going through the same realities and struggles that they went through hundreds of years before. Well, Paul gives us this great word in response to this type of worldly thinking which can be found in the church as well as in the world. Galatians 1.10 For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Do you get it? It doesn't matter what people say. If you're treasuring Christ, who cares? You're not doing it for them. You're doing it because Christ is your greatest treasure. So Christian, if someone tells you to lower your value of Christ and not to treasure him so highly, well, do not listen to them. Show them the pricelessness of Christ by doing beautiful things, wild things, risky things, things that the, that the world, and even some Christians would say, I, I don't get it. How can they treasure Christ that much? I don't get it. And let these acts, these beautiful acts, spur on the rest of us Christians so that we would all treasure Christ more, so that the world would see that that Jesus is worth everything. Pour out your life as an offering. And if anyone attempts to, to get you to store up your treasures in this life, and they will, and your own flesh will, to be rich in this life and not in faith, well, do not listen to them. Plug your ears politely. Tell them, no, thank you. I'm not buying that because Jesus is better. Remember, Jesus is your treasure and all that money can buy cannot compare to him. So use what he gives to you for his glory. And one final truth. If you treasure Christ, Jesus will be pleased. I love this. I love this in this text. If you treasure Christ, Jesus will be pleased. Is this not the desire of your heart, Christian? Don't you want to please your Lord and Savior? Look at what Jesus says in response to the criticism being thrown at Mary. Look at what he says in verse 6 and, and on. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I love that our Savior, he protects her. Leave her alone, stop it. Get off of her back. He commands them not to mess with her. He declares that what she has done has not been a waste, that, that what she has done has been a truly beautiful thing. Think about it. This is the same man who had raised her, her dearly beloved brother, Lazarus, from the dead. She knew that, that he is the Lord, that he is life. And now, reigning over her, just coming over her ears is this, this, this word about what she has just done. She's done a beautiful thing and she's hearing that. And I confidently tell you this, Christian, the same is true for you every single time you pour out your life when you treasure Christ. It is a beautiful thing, a precious thing, a glorious thing. Now, it is possible to misread verse 7 and think that Jesus is dismissing the needs of the poor, and that's not at all what he's saying. We should give to the poor. Jesus taught that, and he lived that reality. What he's saying here is that, is that the reason why her act is not a waste, why, why it, sh- it wouldn't have been better to sell that flask and give the proceeds of the poor, is that there will always be poor. There will always be poor. But soon, and the window is closing. It's getting smaller and smaller before he's going to the cross. Before someone can do the very thing that, that, that Mary does in this passage. A unique thing that's going to prepare him for burial. That window is closing. 
and closing. And the expectation here is that the poor will always be with you. It's, it's kind of like this. Christians are expected to be with the poor always. <laughs> and, and here is a moment when Mary can use this treasure, this passing moment, this window is closing, to, to anoint, to pour it out on, to bless Jesus rightly, acknowledging his worth. Jesus is God. And the first commandment is that we should love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Mary is doing that here. Jesus is saying that he is first. He is of greatest importance. As one commentator puts it, we are to care for the poor, but we are to worship the Savior. And that is what she is doing. That's why she is worshiping the Savior rightly. So friend, if you understand your need for Christ, if, if you know the seriousness of your sin and that Christ alone can save you, that, that Jesus, the Lamb of God, died in your place, that he is the resurrection and the life, then what treasure do you have that is too expensive to throw at the feet of Jesus and exalt Christ with it? What treasure would you be wasting if you used it on Christ? If you have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the question will not be, am I doing too much for myself? You'll never ask that. Am I doing too much? Is, is there all this that I'm doing for Jesus, trying to treasure him and, and show his, his surpassing worth before a dying world that, that worships stuff and other people and things? No, instead, your concern will be, am I making too much of money? Am I making too much of my career, of sports or of politics? Am I living for myself, wasting my life? You will not be afraid of doing too much for Christ because you know full well that Jesus is worth more than everything earthly that you have. You will agree in heart with Paul's words in Philippians 3, 7, and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Why? Paul gives this answer in verse 9. It is that only by being found in Christ can he be righteous before God. He knows that. He believes the gospel. It's only in Christ that I can be declared righteous before a holy God. And so what can I not give? I want to give everything. Paul. He pours out his life. Paul dies. He gives up his life because Christ is worthy of his life. In response to the worth of Jesus, Mary's heart was full of thankfulness and that's why she joyously did this beautiful thing that demonstrated that her greatest treasure is Jesus Christ. Mary loved Jesus, and because of her love, she treasured Jesus Christ. May the same be true of you and I, church. May we be remembered like Mary for treasuring Christ. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven who is worthy to be praised and worshipped, we pray that you would release our grips from the shiny things of this world so that we can better fully grab hold of the treasure that is your son, Jesus Christ. Father, you know the secret idols that our hearts are tempted by. Whatever they might be, some of them so foolish and some of them so strong and some of them uh, so wicked and ultimately all of them terrible in the sight of the glory of Christ. And I pray that you would help us be released from the shackles of these idols so that we would glorify Christ, that we would treasure Christ, that, that we would do more and more and more, not to earn anything from you because we know that we cannot, but because of the grace, the lavish love that you poured out on us in Christ. Father, may Christ be most precious to us, your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.